All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton, and this week we are standing in the confessional corner looking at the Sixth Commandment. And in our world today, this seems to be the chief commandment that is talked about over and over and over again. And I'm not wanting to beat a dead horse. I simply want to go through what Luther has for us in his catechisms. If you want to talk about the differences with the LGBTQ plus community or uh, the gender identity issues, which, yes, is wrapped up in there, too. I know that. There are plenty of other guys who have put stuff out on the Internet that are better versed in those issues than I am. And I encourage you to go out and look at them, especially if you get the more conservative guys. So I encourage you, if you're wanting something for that, for the Sixth Commandment, go out and look there. I'm not that equipped to be able to do that. Thankfully, God has equipped guys who are able to, who have better knowledge of these issues to be able to speak to them even better. But this week, we're just going to go through the Catechism. Sixth Commandment from the Small Catechism. You shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. Very simple, very succinct, very impossible to do. And we'll talk about that especially as we move to the large catechism. So this week we are in the Concordia, the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, the Sixth Commandment. In the Large Catechism, page 381. You shall not commit adultery. The following commandments, being commandments 6 through 10, are easily understood from the explanation of the preceding commandments, particularly 4 and 5. For they all are to show that we must avoid doing any kind of harm to our neighbor, but they are arranged in fine order. In the first place, they talk about our neighbor personally. Then they proceed to talk about the person nearest him or the closest possession next after his body, namely his wife. She is one flesh and blood with him, Genesis 2, 23-24, so that we cannot inflict a higher injury upon him in any good that is his. Therefore, it is clearly forbidden here to bring any disgrace upon our neighbor regarding his wife. The commandment really takes aim at adultery because among the Jewish people, it was ordained and commanded that everyone must be married. The young were engaged to be married early, and the virgin state was held in small esteem. Yet neither were public prostitution and lewdness tolerated as now. Therefore, adultery was the most common form of unchastity among them. Luther does a marvelous job of connecting the entire second table of the law together, especially as we get into this commandment. We have the desire to take care of our neighbor, especially the neighbors that are closest to us, particularly our first neighbors, our mother and father. Then we have our neighbor in his body in the fifth commandment. Now we have the neighbor's spouse in the sixth commandment. And then you have the rest of possessions in 7, 9, and 10, but then also uh, 8, his reputation as well. So all of these things are connected together and all work together to help expand this idea of loving our neighbor as ourself. 
But Luther also talks about the condition of the Old Testament people and the social structure that was there regarding marriage. Because this is not, you shall not fornicate. I mean, it's in there, but specifically says you shall not commit adultery. Why? Because everyone was required to marry. And you were married young so that you didn't have to worry about going through all of the urges of what we would call adolescence now and the teenage years without a way to do it in a godly, sexually pure and decent manner because you would be married. So children were engaged to each other, betrothed at an early age. And some say this could even be back like the uh, East Indians and doing it at like six, seven, eight years old. Some have it in the early time around their bar or bat mitzvah. We have different op- ideas from the anthropologists that try to go back to it. But what we have definitely is the idea that being unmarried is not a good thing. Now we have a completely different idea of that in 2022 is that, you know, you have many people putting off marriage until they get their career on the path that they want. So you have a large number of women who are my age in their mid forties, uh, looking for all these different ways of trying to finally start a family when most of us who are more the old-fashioned, get-married-young-type deal have kids that are now getting to the age of looking at marriage themselves as I have a sophomore in college and a senior in high school. They're looking forward to having that life, that relationship together. Not with each other, but you know, with the with the spouses that God has set aside for them. But that's where the aim at adultery comes in, is because everybody's <clears throat> married. It reminds me of the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding and the opening scene where it's raining, Gus and um, Fortula are in the car getting ready to open the restaurant, and he says you need to get married. You look so old. She says, he's been saying that since I was nine. That's kind of the idea. The idea of marrying early to help, first of all, to give proper outlet for the sexual desires that come with youth. And therefore, it was adultery being the most common form of unchastity among the Jews. But before we get to, before we leave this paragraph, I want to get to the statement right before that. Yet neither were public prostitution and lewdness tolerated as now. Luther is writing this in 1529. Almost 500 years ago. And he's talking about the rampantness of public prostitution and lewdness then 500 years later it's even worse because we have it right there at our fingertips truly 
that we can sit there. And there are apps set up for people to find other people to commit adultery with. There is tons of pornography sites all over the place for any kind of thing that you could possibly want. It's there. You can find it. But that is praised today because we have gone so far away from what the Bible has taught us. We continue on with paragraph 202. But among us, there is such a shameful mess and the very dregs of all vice and lewdness. Therefore, this commandment is directed against all kinds of unchastity, whatever it may be called. Not only is the outward act of adultery forbidden, but also every kind of cause, motive, and means of adultery. Then the heart, the lips, and the whole body may be chaste and offer no opportunity, help, or persuasion toward unchastity. Not only this, but we must also resist temptation, offer protection, and rescue honor wherever there is danger and need. We must give help and counsel so as to maintain our neighbor's honor. For whenever you abandon this effort when you could resist unchastity, or whenever you overlook it as if it did not concern you, you are as truly guilty of adultery as the one doing the deed. To speak in the briefest way, this much is required of you. Everyone must live chastely himself and help his neighbor do the same. So by this commandment, God wishes to build a hedge about, Job 1.10, and protect every spouse so that no one trespasses against him or her. This is the call of the commandment, not only to resist, but to help and defend the honor of those who are falsely accused. And as Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, it is not just the outward doing of the deed. It is the lustful glance, the lustful thoughts in the heart and in the mind that are also breaking this commandment. We pick up in paragraph 206. But this commandment is aimed directly at the state of marriage and gives us an opportunity to speak about it. The main thing that this commandment is upholding is the gift of marriage from God. Continuing on with Luther. First, understand and mark well how gloriously God honors and praises this estate. For by his commandment, he both approves and guards it. He has approved it above in the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. But here he has, as we said, hedged it about and protected it. Therefore, he also wishes us to honor it, Hebrews 13, 4, and to maintain and govern it as a divine and blessed estate, because in the first place, he has instituted it before all others. He created man and woman separately, as is clear, Genesis 1.27. This was not for lewdness, but so that they might live together in marriage, be fruitful, bear children, and nourish and train them to honor God. Genesis 1.28, Psalm 128, Proverbs 22.6, and Ephesians 6.4. Man and woman were created for marriage. We see this all throughout history. We see this in our own lives. It's that desire that each that almost every person has to find that person that completes that one flesh union with him that complements them that as i stated earlier in a completely different context 
that has the strengths and the abilities in the places where you do not. That is what we seek for in our relationships. We seek for it because that is the way God has designed us so that we may live together in marriage, be fruitful, bear children, and nourish and train them to honor him. That is the whole point of marriage. That is the whole point of relationship in our world. It is always about the togetherness, not the individuality. We continue on in paragraph 208. Therefore, God has also most richly blessed this estate above all others. In addition, he has bestowed on it and wrapped up in it everything in the world so that this estate might well be, might be well and richly provided for. Married life is therefore no joke or presumption. It is an excellent thing in a matter of divine seriousness. For marriage has the highest importance to God so that people are raised up who may serve the world and promote the knowledge of God, godly living, and all virtues to fight against wickedness and the devil. I have always taught that this estate should not be despised or held in disrepute, as is done by the blind world and our false church leaders. Marriage should be regarded as it is in God's word, where it is adorned and sanctified. It is not only placed on an equality with other estates, but it comes first and surpasses them all, emperor, princes, bishops, or whoever they please. For both church and civil estates must humble themselves and all be found in this estate, as we shall hear. Therefore, it is not a peculiar estate, but the most common and noblest estate that runs through all Christendom. Yes, it extends through all the world. What is the one thing that is common to every single society, civilization that has ever been? On the most basic level, there has always been the estate of marriage. There has always been this upholding of this union. And up until recent years, it has always been seen as the union of one man and one woman. Because that is the way God established it. However, as we'll see throughout the rest of this commandment and the catechism, God made this a civil estate and not a church religious estate. Therefore, yes, if the, if the government wants to redefine marriage as was done by the Supreme Court in the Obergefell versus Hodges decision, they are allowed to do it because it is a civil estate. And believe me, that has caused no shortage of disheartenment and troubling for pastors who try to uphold the true definition of marriage in the Bible. But we may get into that at another time. We pick up in paragraph 211. In the second place, you must know also that marriage is not only an honorable but a necessary state. In general and in all conditions, it is solemnly commanded by God that men and women who are created for marriage shall be found in this estate. Yet there are some exceptions, although few, whom God has especially set apart. They are not fit for the married estate, or there are individuals whom he has released by a high supernatural gift so that they can maintain chastity without this estate. Matthew 19, 11-12 
For where nature has its course, since it is given by God, it is not possible to remain chaste without marriage. 1 Corinthians 7. For flesh and blood remain flesh and blood. The natural desire and excitement have their course without delay or hindrance, as everybody sees and feels. In order, therefore, that it may be easier in some degree to avoid in chastity, God has commanded the estate of marriage. In this way, everyone may have his proper portion and be satisfied with it. Yet God's grace is also required in order that the heart may be pure. So he has here in this second place, that yes, it's been commanded by God. God desires for everyone to be married. Yet there are some people that God has especially equipped and gifted to be able to be fine by themselves. This is definitely not a majority. This is definitely not even a large minority. Luther says in 1529 that although few, it is still although few. People want to say, I'm I'm okay by myself, because that is what the world has tried to tell us. And then we find out that we're still missing something. There is still something unhappy with us. But then again, that's also a bad word too, because you know, happiness, you know, should not be because somebody else is there. But happiness in the sense of being an opposite of loneliness. Okay, I'll I can use happiness there. But we have this issue where, yes, 99.9 something percent of us in this world are hardwired in our hearts and in our minds that we need someone else. Whether it's someone else to complete us, someone else to take care of us, or someone for us to take care of. All those are valid reasons to show the importance and the necessity, as Luther says, of marriage. All right, we pick up in paragraph 213 on page 383. From this you see how this popish rabble, priests, monks, and nuns, resist God's order and commandment. For they despise and forbid matrimony, and they dare and vow to maintain perpetual chastity. Besides this, they deceive the simple-minded with lying words and appearances. For no one has so little love and desire for chastity as these very people. Because of great sanctity, they avoid marriage and either indulge in open and shameless prostitution or secretly do even worse, so that no one dare speak of it. Unfortunately, this has been learned too fully. In short, even though they abstain from the act, their hearts are so full of unchaste thoughts and evil lusts that there is a continual burning and secret suffering, which can be avoided in the married life. 1 Corinthians 7, 9. Therefore, all vows of chastity outside of the marriage married estate are condemned by this commandment. Free permission to marry is granted. Indeed, even the command is given to all poor ensnared consciences that have been deceived by their monastic vows. Abandon the unchaste state and enter the married life. They must consider that even if the monastic life were godly, it would still not be in their power to maintain chastity. And if they remain in their monastic vows, they must only sin more and more against this commandment. This is extremely well noted, especially in the Luther movies. If you look to the most recent one with Joseph Fiennes, you see that 
as Luther goes to Rome, as he's on this pilgrimage, this pilgrimage and special assignment from Wittenberg to Rome, he sees the places where the priest and the monks go, where they can have their sacred time with the sanctified uh, prostitutes. There are also many stories throughout history of monks and nuns having their convents and monasteries close to each other so that they could engage in their own private times with each other. And again, going back to the latest Luther movie, that there is the talk of even the Pope having numerous mistresses and illegitimate children, but still being the Pope and the head of the Catholic Church. These things are not well hidden. They are very out in the open. And not just picking on the Catholic Church. We've had that with whether it's the unchastity between men and women in the Catholic Church or the pedophilia scandal, but we've had that in the Lutheran Church, we've had it in the Baptist Church, we've had it in all kinds of churches all across the board. Uh, When the Spotlight article first came out exposing what was going on in Boston especially, and then finding out throughout most of the rest of the country and the world that it was going on there too and being covered up, people went and they brought out all the rest of them, where you had Protestant pastors giving counsel to women that to undo their sins, they had to reenact them with the pastor, creating yet again another complete level of just insanity in this idea of what do we do with the Sixth Commandment? How do we pronounce forgiveness? And we think because it involves sex that it is a completely different animal. But we forgive sexual sins the same way we forgive every other sin. In the name and by the stead of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins, all of them, without exception. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There is no category of sin that comes outside of there that you need to have something else for. They are all covered in the absolution spoken by the pastor. Everything is there. That is where we need to go. But for these sins especially, that is the last place we want to go. We want to more change the rules. Why? Because this is dealing with our pleasure center. This is dealing with our desires. And we definitely don't want to get rid of our desires. Luther was one that, yes, he got a lot of flack from many people, especially his close friends, for his constant talking about the necessity of the married estate. And so as he talks in 216 to all those who have been deceived by their monastic vows, abandoned the unchaste state and entered the married life. He married off all of his friends that had come out of the monastery with him. But he himself didn't want a wife. Well, that didn't last very long. 
but he himself also saw the great benefit of being for himself in the married estate with Katerina von Bora. All right, we close up our look today, paragraphs 217 to 221. Now I speak of this in order that the young may be guided so that they desire the married estate and know that it is a blessed estate and pleases God. For in this way, over time, we might cause married life to be restored to honor. There might be less of the filthy, loose, disorderly behavior that runs riot the world over and open prostitution and other shameful vices arising from disregard for married life. Therefore, it is the duty of parents and the government to see to it that our youth are brought up with discipline and respectability. When they have become mature, parents and government should provide for them to marry in the fear of God and honorably. God would not fail to add this, his blessing and grace so that people would have joy and happiness from marriage. Let me now say in conclusion what this commandment demands. Everyone should live chaste in thought, word, and deed in his condition, that is, especially in the estate of marriage. But also everyone should love and value the spouse God gave to him, Ephesians 5.33. For where marital chastity is to be maintained, man and wife must by all means live together in love and harmony. Then one may cherish the other from the heart and with complete faithfulness. For harmony is one of the principal points that enkindles love and desire for chastity, so that where this is found, chastity will follow without any command. Therefore, St. Paul diligently encourages husband and wife to love and honor one another. Here you have again precious, indeed many and great good works. You can, be, you can joyfully boast about them against all churchly estates chosen without God's command and, and word. As he concludes, he then sends in another jab against the monks and the nuns and the church orders that give that require vows of perpetual chastity. Vows that, as we spoke of earlier, none of them could really keep in the first place. So we have the issues there. How can we fix it? Honor the estate of marriage. Put it back in the place where it deserves to be as the basic, most basic building block of all of human society. Then we will see the great joy that God has in the blessing of, of marriage. All right, that's it for this week. I am Pastor Doug Minton, thanking you for standing in the confessional corner with me this week as we dive into the Sixth Commandment. Next week, we're into the Seventh Commandment as we figure out what it is that is actually stealing and how much you actually steal every single day. But until then, I pray that this podcast has help to strengthen you, especially against the theologies of the LGBTQ and all others who seek to destroy God's most blessed estate of marriage. Amen.